0: That's the way the body of Christ is supposed to be. Good evening, everybody. Uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians 3. Colossians chapter 3. And we've got uh, a work cut out for us today. And that we're going to try and summarize the, the theme, the one theme of the Sermon on the Mount where we find the Lord's Prayer. So, if you bear with me, I would think this class and one more, and then we'll be able to start the Lord's prayer uh, properly. So, uh, let's bar- with that in mind. Let's uh, have a moment of prayer and let's thank God for the time that we have together to be with Him and to be with His Word, and to fellowship together in the learning of His Word. So, with all humility, let's bow our heads and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you for you and for your word. Thank you that you have provided for us so amazingly through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you that we need fear nothing, that we can rely upon you. We know, Father, that the place of happiness, the place of blessing is in your presence. And so, Father, (coughs) we um, are grateful and thankful and as we uh, tackle such an important subject, we uh, ask for guidance by your Holy Spirit to each of us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so um, the, the theme here is going to be and has been the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I've, but of course, we're starting in the epistles again because I want to show you uh, how the epistles uh, show the exact same thing. As the Sermon on the Mount, and it's not something different. Uh, <clears throat> it's expanded upon in the epistles, but we're going to see the the absolutely that they are what what Christ is speaking of, and for instance in Colossians, what Paul is speaking of, is the same thing. The main idea of this great sermon is <clears throat> a command to love and live. In the image of Christ, and that's a very broad summary because there's so much in in the great sermon of our Lord. Um, but it is, uh, as we will see, the living from the heart. Uh, <clears throat> if you remember, uh, in the new covenant that God gave to Israel, well, hey, and it was the beginning of It's fulfilled in the church. But part of that new covenant in Jeremiah 31 is that the law would be written where, on your heart, and and so what that means is, is that where you could, in the past in the Old Testament, uh, kind of reach out and grasp the law, if you will, take hold of the law to follow the law. In this age, uh, we have the opportunity—not the opportunity—is it, a reality. It depends on if we take advantage of it or not. Uh, <clears throat> the reality is, is that what we learn is etched upon our hearts. It's not, it becomes a part of us. And it becomes a part of us through faith, through the Holy Spirit. So we mix faith in God's Word uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit within. And then uh, we're able to truly have the, the Word of God, the law of God, written on our hearts and the law of God in this case it wouldn't be uh, as we've seen ethically morally different than what it was in the past it's just that they didn't have it written on their hearts they couldn't they weren't indwelt by the spirit uh, so <clears throat> that's why when Jesus speaks of loving you know it's not a there's not some absolutely strange and different kind of love in the old testament I and mean, it's a love of your neighbor it's love has characteristics like kindness that's the old and new it's not like we're only to be kind in the new testament and so you get what i mean it's uh the the love therefore of the command cuz it's a part of you the love of the command in, in the, uh, the love of, therefore, what you have been made in the image of Christ. So <clears throat> in the midst of this sermon, which is the reason why we're doing this, is that the Lord shows us how to pray. His prayer is a framework upon which we are to keep in consistent communication with the Father as we strive to do this, as we strive to learn and put our faith in the laws of God and have them written upon our hearts. As we noted on Sunday, it's not the doing that we are under, but the love for whom we do those things that rules us. It's a he that rules us, not a what. The rules themselves are, again, etched upon our heart. So, the rules themselves are not what rule us, it's he who rules us. He's the one who wrote the law. He's the one, he's the author of it. So we say, well, if, if it's not the doing that we're under, and this starts to get us confused, but then ask yourself, why would Christ do the law? I mean, he's, he's not under it. He's the writer of it. He's above it. If anybody's above it, it's him. So why would he follow it? And the answer is very easy. It's because of who he is. Would Jesus be kind? Is he being kind just to be kind? Or is he... In nature, kind. Is he in nature, love? God is love. He said, I am the truth, right? I am life. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. And so all of these things he is. And that's what now, when um, through our faith and faith in the things that we study, to, and actually by faith we do mean That we apply these things to our lives is not just an academic, yeah, I believe that. I mean, I believe it's good to do. I just don't do it. Uh, We wouldn't call that faith. (laughs) That's more of an assent. It's not really faith. So we're in union with the one who fulfilled the law. We're married to the one who removed the penalty of sin, releasing us from death. We're married to him. One of the names of the law is sin and death. But we possess eternal life. We don't do because we're under the law. We do because we love to do. Like God does. God is love. He has made us. And God is love. In John 3.16, very famously, He loved the world, so He did something. It results in doing. And we do because we love to do. So what has God done here? Instead of having us reach out to grab hold of the law, he has made us, he has changed us from trying to conform to a law to changing our entire will. Our entire will is changed to desire the law of God and not to try to find a way around it. So yeah, I know those things are good things and I ought to do them, but is there a way I can kind of circumvent is there uh, you know, a hidden clause here that will get me off the hook? In, in this case, you don't want to be off the hook. So if we follow a list of rules or commands towards some end or goal, and then we are, if we do that, then we're under the rule of the list. If we follow a list of rules or commands towards the, an towards the end or goal, then we're under the command of the list. But if we do the things on the list because we're the type of people who do those things, then we are above the list. If we, <coughs> if we were Christ himself, then we would be the creator of the list, but we are called to be conformed to his image, which for the writers of the New Testament always has an ethical note, and that's where we start. Uh, <coughs> we are made new, right? So you find that in the Old Testament, you do not. We are made new, and that newness is in the image of Christ. Look at Colossians 3.10. And you, it's not there, but it's implied in the prior clause, and you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. All right, so first off, we point out in the second part, starting in verse 11, that your physical makeup is not the determining factor. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, uh, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman, uh, you would appear different, you'd dress different, you'd sound different uh, <clears> than <throat> um, the component there, meaning that if I was a Greek and not a Jew, I'd look different from the Jew, I'd talk different from the Jew, I'd wear different clothes, probably have a different profet- profession. Uh, so it's the, not the material things that matter here, but what does matter. The new self, in verse 10, is being renewed to a true knowledge according to, notice this word, icon, image, image of the one who created him. So, being renewed means learning, growing, made new, again and again and again, not in position, but in knowledge and understanding, increased faith, increased love, uh, and it's to a full knowledge or a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So who created your new self is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's created after His icon, his image. Now what is that image? Well, it's not like this image is also used in Second Corinthians three for when you look in the mirror and you see an image. Now, when you look in a mirror, if you see yourself, well, you say, well, that's me. Uh, but if you looked in the mirror and you saw Christ, would you be Would you be him? The answer is no. Nobody's him. So what is this image? It's not that we are exactly like him, because he's the one and only. We're not God. <clears throat> Quite lower than God. <laughs> but what image we're seeing is the character. The image we're seeing is the virtue, is the ethical manner of the man, the God-man. And the new self is made in that image. Not made in the hopes that it will be that image. That would be a different prepositional phrase. In that image. So your new self, which you are, is designed for no other reason. That image. So to give us light and understanding in the Sermon on the Mount, we look at passages like this. Because this is exactly parallel. What did he tell us to be in the Sermon on the Mount? Does he tell us to look a certain way, dress a certain way, speak a certain way? Uh, <clears throat> no. Does he say, stop speaking Greek, speak Hebrew? No, it's not Jew or Gentile, Jew or Greek. What he, teach, what he tells us to do is to think and act and to treat each other a certain way. To treat ourselves a certain way. And you know, one of the wonderful things that he tells us to never do is to be anxious for nothing. He shows us his image in the Sermon on the Mount so when we believed in Christ we became something what does he say if you greet those who, lo- who love you what are, how are you extraordinary he that's in Matthew 5 we became something when we believe in Christ as our Savior we became something extraordinary but we must know this by faith because you don't see it in the mirror that's not the image Uh, you're not going to talk a lot differently. That's not, you know, the sound of your voice isn't going to change. Your patterns of likes and dislikes, at least not at the start, they don't change. Oh, all the bad things that you like, you bring, it's still in there. That's all got to change, be renewed, not overtly, in here. And, we are been made new, so we're made for that change. Through the Holy Spirit, we are designed to change, to be in His image. Now, did Christ do something extraordinary for us? How could it not be? But how can we know this? By faith. It's the only way we can know it. And if by faith we do not determine to be what we are in our new selves, you're not going to do it. If you'd say it's something I like to do, you're not going to do it. You might do it for a little bit. But what do we really do? What we love. Uh, So, I mean, herein lies... And so where do I get that love of this life? Right? Which is what we're talking about. The love of the law... Because you love the lawgiver. You are in union with the lawgiver, so the law is not something on paper in front of me that's above me, that's a list that I'm following. Uh Uh-uh. It's right in here written on my heart. It's a part of me. Just like God is love, right? Joe is gracious. Joe is self-control. Oh, I wish. (laughs) But we're working on it. When I say we, I mean me and and the rest of my friends that are inside me, and I do mean the Trinity. Uh, so we can only know this by faith. What monumental thing that Christ Christ did for us is something above and beyond what anyone could have ever dreamed. It has to be. Look at look at. Um, I don't have them in my notes, but in Colossians one fifteen. Who is? This is my passage I'm doing one of my papers on, so I know it well. Who is the image of the invisible God? The one who is the image, in Colossians 1.15, of the invisible God, look at verse 20. He made peace through the blood of his cross. You see a contrast there? Because I sure do. The one who is the image, not like the image, is the image of the invisible God made peace through blood. How does invisible God make blood? That is quite visible. Because he's man. So, he made peace. Who, where's the peace? It's between you and the Lord. No more barriers. Uh, sin is forgiven. Cast is east far as the east is from the west. Nothing stands between you and the Father. If, therefore, the one who is the image of the invisible God made peace through the blood of his cross, God became a man and died. Something amazing had to have been done. Since he did it on our behalf, look at Colossians 2.13. I realize my error of not putting them in my notes. But when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. That's extraordinary. But now we see in in Colossians that the extraordinary was done for us or on our behalf. So this amazing thing that was done was done for you. The one who was in the image of the invisible God made peace through the blood of his cross and he did that for you. So something amazing was done for you. And then, in our passage here in Colossians 3.10, you have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him or her. And so we run and look in the mirror. And what do we find? Our new image. No, you look like you, you're the old image and you're getting older. But Paul's emphasis when he writes about the image of Christ, just like he says here at the second part of the verse, it's not about overt appearance. Overt appearance would be Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. barian Scythian, slave freemen. Overtly, they would look quite different. And he never makes an issue, nor does anyone in the scripture, about the appearance of the Lord Jesus. It is amazing to us that no one thought to describe him. What color were his eyes? His hair? How tall was he? What his facial features? What did he look like? Nobody thought to write it down. Not a word. And, you know, you're not to have any images other than God. Maybe that's the reason. But it is also probably likely that no one thought of it because that's not how they saw him. They didn't see him as blue eyes or gray eyes or green eyes. They saw him as the Lord God Almighty. Something a lot more than how big his nose was. Paul does not emphasize that, but Paul's emphasis always in relation to the image of Christ, which is now the image of us, is ethical. Always. This image, And this is what we find in Christ's sermon. What do we find? Ethics. A way of life. So, in now we can look at Our passage, Colossians 3.10, in context. Go back to verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience and be judged for their sin. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also, having put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abuse of speech from your mouth, do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And you have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction overt appearance between Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. We could also throw in here male and female, which is in another Paul's list. Barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman. But Christ is all, and where is He? In all. Where was the law to be written in the New Covenant? On your heart. So, we see starting in verse 5, That the believer is made new. This image. How is the image shown? My appearance didn't change to look like Christ. The image of Christ that I am, a new creature, changed me within so that I could look like Him in character, in will, in intelligence, in speech. Note again that the image of the new self is not projected in appearance, but in action and in thought. It is dead to immorality, impurity, passion, that's sinful passion, because there's a good passion, evil desire, greed, idolatry, and to put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, and lying. Now, are all of these things in the Old Testament law? Amen, they are. Immorality? Is that okay in the Old Testament? No. Impurity? Evil desire? Greed? Idolatry? Oh my God, it was all Israel's problem was idolatry. Was anger okay? Wrath, malice, slander, abuse of speech? How about lying? Right there in the Ten Commandments. You see it repeated here in the New Testament, do you not? And you also see it repeated in the Sermon on the Mount. Except, when Jesus says things like, no more impurity, Jesus said, you know what? What this law really means? Is that you're not even in your heart to look at another to lust at them. Nobody caught you. You didn't actually do the deed or commit the adultery. But in your heart, you thought about it. He said this law given to mankind covers right through not just this thing, the eye, but in here, the heart. Cleansed within. Again, where is the law written? Now, in this age, on our hearts. Your physical makeup makes no difference here. There's no distinction between Greek and Jew. But what you are is a new creature in Christ. So, uh, Galatians, we'll return to that in a second. But here, now, well, yeah, i will leave that as I think about it. Uh, so, what we've got to do, we're, we're going to uh, return to Galatians 3 tomorrow when we finish this up. Uh, to Galatians in general. And we're going to look at Galatians and how it says we're not under the law. All right? But, you know, we do the things of the law to the degree that we're supposed to. In other words, we're not going to commit adultery, no, but we're not even going to look in our heart. We're not even going to commit adultery in our heart. We're never going to lie in our heart. We're never going to think of it. Now, I know we're sinners, right? But this is what the law is. The law was always meant to be as pure as God is. And that's our standard. And whether, you know, we live up to it, we fail, we do. We're sinners, we fail. That's not the issue here. The issue is what is your goal? And it's to that goal you're always headed. You never say, well, yeah, that was good for Jesus, he's God, but, you know, I've got this lesser law. No, you do not. That is the magnificence of the Sermon on the Mount in the New Testament. That Christianity is really tossed in the trash can because they say it's too damn hard. And the fact that they have watered it down, they've made it impossible because there is no law by which God will propel you to that is less than his. In other words, if I have a watered-down version of divine love, and I say that's my target, you have no hope of hitting it. Ever. Because God is not taking you to that mediocre place. Where is God taking you? Heaven itself, always. And so while your goal is where it should be, you have every hope of hitting it. And I do mean in time. You know, maybe for moments at first, but your momentum will build. Your understanding will build. Your faith will build. As long as your target is accurate. So notice Psalm 116, verse 6. This is in this morning's reading. David writes, The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. It's a short psalm. I highly recommend it um, while we're in this study for the next couple of days. Uh, Read it and pray about it. It's marvelous. Psalm 16. What are the lines? The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, David says. These lines are the boundaries of God's law in the context of the psalm. The lines are like uh, the the sidelines on a football field. You can't continue to play if you go out of bounds. And these boundaries, uh, David acknowledges, are in pleasant places. I like where they are. In fact, I rejoice in where they are. I don't have this idea. I wish the lines were a little wider. I wish the narrow road were a little broader. We say, uh-uh, I want it just the way it is. Because anything off of it, to the right or to the left, is not holy. That's not of what I am. Not now. I'm made in Christ's image. <clears throat> right? We really didn't know what we were getting ourselves into at salvation. But how when you understand that it's, you know, with the grace of God and the this is another aspect of the new covenant is your sins and iniquities I remember no more. Right? You're forgiven of all things, so don't be afraid to walk that narrow road. You say, I don't want to try it. I'm going to, obviously I'm gonna fall off. And God says, go. Don't worry about falling off. When you do, get back on. But if you never try it, You'll never know it. Boy, is it narrow. (laughs) I don't think we know the half of it. So the main idea here of the Lord's sermon is the command to love and to live in the image of Christ. Uh, We'll see this tomorrow. Christ became a curse for us. By Him, we have the forgiveness of all sin. By His blood, by the blood of His cross, He made peace. Through faith, we become uh, in His image ready to go. We have the Spirit within. We're securing Christ. We don't fear failure because we're forgiven. See, the, <clears throat> the wrong approach to forgiveness is to say Oh, like Corinthians, I can sin now. And the forgiveness was given so that you could walk this narrow road that is like a razor's edge, and not fear falling. So, right, if, you've walked a, if you walked a balance beam when it's flat on the ground, like walking a curb, uh, you know it's easy. Because if you fall, you fall about two inches. Walk that same balance beam if it's, you know, 20 feet up. You're not going to do it. You're too afraid. The same thing is true here. Forgiveness puts the balance beam right on the floor. And you can get back on. What God is teaching us to do is to love the balance beam. And to hate everything that's outside of it. This is a new creature. So, Advice, we're going to talk about this tomorrow too, stop looking morbidly. There's so many things wrong with you. So many things. Stop looking morbidly at what is wrong with you and start looking with confidence and solid conviction on what is so very right with you. Stop looking morbidly. Now, do you have to look at what's wrong with you at times? Absolutely. We have to self-evaluate and confess sin. I mean, we're not commanded to confess sin, but Jesus put it in His prayer, and John, so you know, famously writes in 1 John one nine, if we do confess. Uh, <clears throat> but we have the the morbidness of looking at what's wrong with us is to hyper focus in everything that's wrong. We so easily do this, and there'd be plenty of people around to point the finger at you and point it out, to be reminded. You don't even need people to do that. Just your memory will do it. Stop looking morbidly at what is wrong with you and start looking with confidence and solid conviction on what is so very right with you. You have put on the new self, which is in the image of the one who created him or her. And so believe it and get going. Which is Paul writes in Philippians 3.14, with your eyes on the prize. Eyes on the prize. Eyes are on him as well as the prize of the upward call. Philippians 3:14. And Jesus shows this this in his authoritative teaching. It is the way of the disciple. Or really not the disciple, it's his disciple. Our eyes are on him as well as the prize of the upward call. What is the prize? There's great reward in time. There's great reward in eternity. You know, for, for years now, I've downplayed the reward in eternity, and then my eyes have been reopened to the reward in eternity. I downplayed it because in my experience in the past, this is what we call pre-understanding. Because of an experience, uh, you look at doctrine with a skewed eye, we all have this. We've got to try and get rid of it. And it takes a while. <clears throat> At least I say it takes a while because it takes me a while. And that I, I saw and heard people bragging about the fact that they were going to have this reward in heaven and that reward in heaven and you weren't going to have it. You're going to be sweeping the floors and blah, blah, blah. And I also saw people that were saying, yeah, you know, my, I don't really want to love you, but I will because there's reward in heaven. And there you love the reward and you don't love the love. Now remember all the crowns have titles. Crown of righteousness, crown of life. It means you love righteousness and you love life, God's life. And so I downplayed it. Because I don't want I don't want to see people. I don't want to do it myself and I know the scripture warns us against that. It's greed. But we have to acknowledge that the New Testament tells us that there's great reward in heaven for those who commit. And, uh, and that God gives us to motivation. And you know, with your mind proper, if you loved love and you thought to yourself, well, you know, you know, what happens when you love love and you love others because you love God's love, meaning you love God, And they, for the most part, you don't really get a lot of gratitude in return. There's not a lot of reward from them or here. Not from from some people, yeah. But those are the people who are easy to love. The people who love you back are easy to love. That's what Jesus said in the sermon. What reward have you? You love those who love you. He said, everybody does that. My disciples, although they do that. Not that we reject those who love us. But he said, My disciples love their enemies. You see, that's my image. And that image, we say, Well, you know, I, I don't get a lot of reward from my enemies. I don't see them thrown in jail. I don't see them catch monkeypox, I don't know what's the latest, or COVID, and suffer. You know, I, I, You know, I don't see that. And of course, that's not a part of love either that you would want those things. So God says, wait, wait. There's reward in heaven. right? And then, when you have the right attitude, it fits perfectly. Okay. So, <clears throat> Jesus taught this with authority. So let's go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And in a matter of minutes, we'll summarize the whole thing, <laughs> which is a really silly thing to do, but... Ah, what the heck, I'm a silly guy. So go to Matthew 7, 24. So the thing we want to remember for today is that to love the command and to love the Lord. Another thing that's a sub-point to this is that command, the way we love it, the reason we love it is not because the command is over us and all we care about is the command, is that the command is in us written in our heart, and we love the Lord who gave the command. So Matthew 7:24, <clears throat> therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the, uh, who built his house on the rock. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. But not so much about, you know, what he taught, because he taught the commands. He taught them in a a way that they had never heard before. That's true. But notice what they were amazed at. He was teaching them as one having authority, not as their scribe. And the scribes would say, well, you know, Moses said this, but, you know, some people think Moses meant that or Moses meant this, and it's kind of wishy-washy. And only Jesus, the Son of God, giver of the law, could have given such a sermon where he defines the commands of Moses, the ethical ones, to what they really should have always been. And he does it with authority. He doesn't do it with like, all right, all right, brace yourself, this is going to shock you a little, you know. You thought love your enemy, uh, sorry, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Hold on a second, I want to kind of correct that, and we'll talk about it. What you know, what you like about that, what you dislike, we'll talk about it. No, with authority, and then he said, and he doesn't give us the option of debating definitions, weighing out the points. Saying to ourselves, you know, what was the strong part of his message? What was the weak part? Let's talk about it. It was either do it or don't. And that's your only option. Do it or don't do it. What they hadn't heard in his teaching, they had heard these commands before, you'll see them, It was the real, uh, uh, sorry, what what they hadn't heard before was defining them as fulfilled in their hearts. And, you know, when you look at the Psalms, like David and the prophets, they saw that. But I don't think anybody could have clearly, I know, nobody could have clearly taught it. Like he had taught it here to... Make all of this, that is the way of life in worshiping God, treating others, and treating yourself, to the level, the depth of what they should be from within, from a position of loving them, because that's the type of person you are in his image. So you can follow along in your Bible. Go back to chapter five, verse one. Let's see if this works. Sermon on the Mount in fifteen minutes. Sounds like a refresher course or some of those things that <laughs> I saw an interview with back in the day, they used to have courses that would promise that would you would be able to read lightning fast. That you'd be taught how to read really, really fast. And I, I saw an interview with somebody who ran one of those scams that he'd have a little stopwatch and say, All right, read the read the read the page, and then he'd click it and be like, Oh, well, not not great. You know, teach them a few things, now read it again. And they'd read it so fast and he'd say go, Wow, look at that. Look how much faster you are. And it was all a lie. That's what the Sermon on the Mountain 15 minutes All right, first you have the Beatitudes, which are the blessed are. That's a Latin term for makarios, uh, the Greek term that means blessed are, right? You have them running through uh, all the way to, um, yeah, okay, I've got the wrong distinction here. All right, all the way to uh, uh, verse 11, all right? So Matthew 5, 1 through 11. Blessed are. Now, I'm not going to read them. as We don't have time for that. We'd get lost in the, in the forest here, in the weeds, if we tried to read the whole sermon in 15 minutes. Now, I uh, highly suggest you do. In one sitting, read uh, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. It'll take you about 20 minutes. At some point, at some point before the week is over, uh because this is what we're talking about, and it's not necessarily the pastor's job to read the Bible for you. He's to teach on its truth. And uh this would help you greatly. Blessed are. Uh, in each of these it's a type of person. Nothing about overt appearance. Blessed are the tall. Blessed are the good looking. Alright? Hey good tall and good looking. Dark, tall, dark, and handsome. No, it's blessed are these types of persons or persons in the heart. Yeah. And the benefits to them are you shall receive mercy, you shall see God, you shall be called sons of God, You, yours is the kingdom of heaven, you shall be comforted. Right? These are all great rewards for people who are of a certain type. So that's how he starts it. Blessed are you who are like this. And it looks a lot like Psalm 1, by the way. Blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 1, 1. The next part is our relationship with others. All others. From our intimate marriage partner all the way to our enemy. And the only fulfillment of these commands Jesus reveals is the divine love Of God in your heart. It's do not murder. You've heard it said. Right? I know I'm skipping a lot. But we're just summarizing. Jesus said. I I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill. Not one jot or tittle is going to fade. Before it's all fulfilled. I didn't come to remove it. I came to fulfill it. And you all, believers in me, my disciples, are going to fulfill it. You've heard it said, Do not murder, but I say to you. You heard it said, Don't commit adultery, but I say to you. You've heard it said, You can divorce for any reason, but I say to you, There's only one reason. You've heard it said that you uh, should keep your vow. I say to you, Don't make a vow. Meaning, don't you lie about one thing. You've heard it said, love your oh eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, leave vengeance in the hands of the Lord. And if your enemy slaps you, give him the other cheek. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies. So the next part is how our relationships are to all others. From intimacy of marriage with our marriage partner to our absolute enemy. And the only fulfillment of these commands, Jesus states at the end, you are to love them with divine love. And then starts chapter 6. This next comes our relationship with ourselves. When we pray, sorry, it starts with giving. When we give, when we pray, and we fast. Why is this about ourselves? Because he said, be careful that you don't do any of these things to be noticed by others. Right? So, blessed is a certain type of person who is my disciple. And this is the way that that disciple treats all others from their closest Mate to their farthest enemy and this is how they treat themselves. They are never looking for uh, praise from others for anything that they do. So he tells us to give and to pray and to fast. But don't we dare do it to get noticed by others but to only worship God Never desire worship of self. Then, in that same section, he says, don't be greedy for earthly things, but store up treasures in heaven. And then he basically says, what you love is what you're going to do. Now, still talking about us in 625. So, we've had, what type is the disciple? How does he treat others? How does he treat himself? continuing in treating himself, be anxious for nothing. Not what you're going to wear. Not what you're going to eat. Not where you're going to go. You've got to do those things. Don't be anxious about them. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. All these things will be added to you. And then he embeds in that section our problem. Why aren't we the blessed ones if we're not in the Beatitudes? Why aren't we treating our enemies with love? Why are we lusting after other others? Why are we seeking vengeance upon those who hurt us? He says, embeds in the anxiety part, he says you are of little faith. That's why. What is the faith based on? Well, it's what we talked about today. Christ did something extraordinary for you. And he made you a creature, a new self in his image. That new self, which you remember Paul defined as back in Colossians 3 was, 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 was dead to immorality, impurity, passion, sinful passion, evil desire, greed, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abuse of speech, and lying. Those things are of the old self. And you can easily fit all of those. Right? Your malice, your lying, your abusive speech, your immorality. Doesn't it all fit in here somewhere? In this sermon. Be anxious for nothing. You have little faith. Okay? Then chapter 7. Last chapter. It's back to others. So we've gone from the type, beatitudes to how we treat others, to how we treat ourselves, how we deal with ourselves, never seeking self-worship, not being anxious, having lots of faith, not a little, and then back to others. Going back to others, still on the theme of anxiety, though. So anxiety towards self and anxiety towards others. What does he say is anxiety towards others? Oh, and it's so true. Judging them. We have got to put them down. And it's I think all of us are just having a ball watching um, Elon Musk taking over Twitter. Uh, it's amazing how crazy they're all going against this guy. Even the White House itself, which is scary in fact, but... Why why? Because you know it's he has to be put in line, right this person that person why? Because we're anxious about them. they're getting away with it. you know on their end they think he's getting away with stuff. The right against the left, the left against the right, this ethnic group against that ethnic group, male against female, female against male, rich and poor, poor and rich. what? Why? Because we're anxious. They have more than us. They have less than us. Whatever. Jesus says, don't judge them. Don't judge anybody. And if you do, he said, it's a warning. You'll be judged. And it's right there that he gives the golden rule. As you want to treat others, sorry, as you want to be treated, so treat others. So this is all the Sermon on the Mount. All of this is how the disciple of Christ lives. Then, don't judge, he returns to prayer. We didn't think that there's prayer in this sermon twice, but there is. After he teaches us not to be anxious, he says, don't forget to continually pray. And it would seem right that this would be at the end of it. Because after... I'm told the type of person I should be, how I'm to treat my wife, my neighbor, my enemy, how I'm to treat myself when I do the work of God, not seeking worship of self, how I'm to treat self in a world that is designed to make this weak, feeble body anxious and by faith put all my trust on Him and seek His kingdom, the pressure of all the people around me that I just want to judge because they either rub me the wrong or whatever the problem is. And then to, you know, to treat them as I would treat my enemy, not judge them. It would make sense that he would say, don't forget to pray continually. It's there that he says, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And that your father is going to give you good things. You know, he said, even your natural fathers, if your son asks you for a fish, you don't give him a stone. You don't give him a rock. Don't forget to pray. And so that's why, you know, that's why I'm looking at the sermon kind of that's surrounding the Lord's, because the Lord's prayer in the middle of it. Let's say that as we're pursuing this narrow road as those who are made in his image, We've got to stay in constant communication because we're so easily distracted. How easy is it for you to judge that person? It happens in a, in a half a second already. The person I'm judging the most now is a five-year-old that I live with. It's so hilarious. She somehow knows how to get under my skin. She got under it last night. And it, you know, it's, it's a few seconds afterwards, after I, my temper calms down, that I'm like, "Oh man, you really should be more mature than this." But she's a little turd, I call her, <laughs> cutest little turd I ever met. But I love her to death. But man, oh man, we know it. You know, we all, all of us here, we've had kids, and but it, you know, how quickly that son-in-law, or son, or daughter, or daughter-in-law, or husband, or wife, it. Immediately we can be judging them. Without constant communication, right? You can't walk around reading the Sermon on the Mount out of your Bible all day. You've got to interact with people. But amazingly, without the Bible, we can shoot up that flare prayer from anywhere at any time. And you could be looking John Q. jerk right in the eye when you do it. Lord give me patience he will and not just patience right how do I encourage them how do I comfort them how do I do good to them keep asking keep seeking keep knocking and then two more things beware of those who teach things that are contrary to this law He ends it with, Beware of false teachers, false prophets. He said, You'll know them by their fruit. So you just got to wait and you'll see it if they're teaching false. Beware of those. It's the only other beware. There's two bewares in this sermon. Beware of doing the service of God to be noticed by men, and beware of false teaching. Any teaching that is contrary to this. There's plenty of false teaching. That is not like the opposite of this. I, I don't think that's the dangerous part. Right? The stuff that's opposite. Look, here comes Hinduism. Yeah, not real a big a big appeal to fool me. You know, but it's that where, you know, that teaching where this is kind of watered down. That's when it gets dangerous. When it's like the Lord's teaching, but it's not the Lord's teaching. Beware of those who teach things contrary to what you have heard. Notice he says that you'll know them by their fruit. And we read with Paul, what Paul wrote in Colossians 3, how is the image of Christ shown in us? Was it our overt appearance that changed? No, it is our character. That is our fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. The disciple is also known by his fruit. And then he closes it with either do this or don't. If you do it, you're the house built upon the rock. Now let's just focus on that for the last minute. What is the house built upon the rock? This is an an, uh, an aspect of this, an image of this that I hadn't thought of before. Uh, whenever I think of a house built upon a rock, there's a famous one in Newport, Rhode Island, that's out on a rock in the middle of the, the harbor, that's built on stilts and it survived like 10 hurricanes. Whoever built that thing, it's like, the, like Roebling who built the Brooklyn Bridge, You know, it's up there. But every stilt that is holding up, stanchion if you will, that's holding up this house, the house isn't on the rock. The rock's not flat. It's a big old jagged rock. It's on stilts and every one of those stilts is firmly planted on the rock. There isn't one of them in the water. And our house can't have like some stilts in the rock and some stilts in the sand. And then it'll tip over. Eventually it will. All the stilts have to be on the rock. And God patiently allows us to figure out that pylon's in the wrong place. That stilt is in the wrong place. I need to move it. And he gives us time to do that. All of this is to be joyous and not burdensome. Why? Because who he made us to be. This is why we have to stay in constant communication. Prayer for others? Because they need to be like this. This is what we should want for them. You know, we pray for their health and we pray that this problem gets fixed and that problem gets fixed. Absolutely. We will see that in one of Paul's prayers. prayers uh, Paul uh, asked the Thessalonians to pray that, that he could make it to them. He said, keep praying that we get to you. But there's a reason why Paul wanted to get to them. It was to impart truth, more truth. And so we, we had to keep in mind as we're praying for ourselves and praying for others that it's this life that is the ultimate goal. That's why when we say, well, we pray we, we pray that you get healed, not that you don't have to tell this to people. So I pray you get better if it's the Lord's will. I've heard people say that, you know it's like, well, really? Wait, you want me to stay sick, you know? Like a dear friend of mine many, many years ago, when my life was absolutely falling apart physically and mentally, this person came up to me and said, "You know I've been praying for you a lot." and I said, "Really?" in the back of my mind, because I'm saying it's not working. Because my life was a mess. I was a, probably in my early 30s. And this person said, I said, what have you been praying? Probably angrily. And this person said, uh, that God would do whatever it takes for you to, to truly love him and to find him. And I was like, oh my God. Uh, whatever it takes, huh? And God was definitely taking whatever it took. He didn't do that anyway. But, you know, But what are we after when we're praying for others and for ourselves is this life. This is the goal. For all of us, this is the goal of all of Christianity. For the image that we've been made at salvation to be the image that is portrayed through us, not from the overt, but from the heart. And so now as we'll see tomorrow, that doesn't mean that, well, if it's not the overt, that my physical body can do whatever it wants, right? Uh no. <laughs> Hence the don't still you still can't commit adultery, right? It's the heart is the control the body. The spirit controls the body. That's why it's called self control. So we can do that tomorrow. No, well, we might do uh, Thursday too, because I want to do the pluck in the eye out passage. It's such a fun passage to, to show us that these things are to be on our hearts and not our physical bodies. So, now we can pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for uh, your blessing upon your word. You always bless your word. Well, of course you do. Because it's you. The Father, we ask that we would comprehend a lot said tonight about this magnificent sermon. It's not that we have to remember it all. But the big idea here is to be the one in the image of Christ who loves Christ and therefore loves His law. Let that law be written upon our hearts so that we may live that law with joy and not burdensome. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.